Welcome to the Global Business School Network podcast. I'm Rob Vember. In this episode, we continue to look back at our Talent for Africa Forum. Convened by GBSN and its first corporate member, Ecobank Academy, this virtual forum was born out of the belief that no sector, business, government, education or non-profit can make meaningful progress alone, especially in such an incredibly diverse, complex and dynamic environment as Africa. Indeed, we view collaboration between the sectors as absolutely necessary to achieve the future that Africa wants. This unique virtual forum highlighted the monumental importance of leadership, management and entrepreneurship across sectors and across the continent. The forum aimed to explore the challenges of building education and development capacity and aligning it with the needs of a rapidly changing environment. The conversations were designed to review new opportunities for innovation and collaboration, especially across business and business schools, to overcome these challenges. Later sessions will deal with the future workforce, learning and development in the fourth industrial revolution, the business of sustainable development, and finally, a session on powering digital transformation. In the second recording of the series, it was my pleasure to host a panel on transformative innovation and entrepreneurship in Africa. Welcome to our Talent for Africa virtual forum. This is session two of the forum entitled Transformative Innovation and Entrepreneurship. It's brought to you in partnership with Echobank Academy. Uh, they're corporate members of the Global Business School Network. We're so happy that you're able to join us today for what I hope is gonna be a lively and fruitful discussion. And of course, made even more lively and more fruitful uh, with your participation. So I encourage you to please your questions and your comments throughout the course of the hour please uh, send them through via the chat function here at the bottom on your Zoom screen. I know we're, we're waiting for, for one more panelist to hopefully join us. I suspect she may be having some connectivity issues. So I'm gonna pull in uh, as we hopefully await Anna's arrival. Uh, Dan Leclerc, who's the CEO of the Global Business School Network. Just to put him on the spot as I love to do, just to talk us through for just a few moments, why this forum, why Talent for Africa, why the virtual forum, why is this so necessary and why now? Well, uh, thanks so much, Rob, and, and thanks, uh, Michael and Darius, and uh, everyone who's joined us this morning. Uh, this all started um, basically uh, about a year ago when uh, we started having serious conversations with Echo Bank Academy. And the thought was, as Simon Ray, the head of Echo Bank Academy, uh, put it, that we, we both agreed that when it comes to developing and meeting the talent needs of Africa, that higher education alone will not be capable of meeting those needs, nor will business and its efforts to develop talent uh, be capable of meeting those needs, that only together uh, collaborating, uh, working jointly to improve the leadership, management, entrepreneurship skills across the continent will we be able to succeed. So uh, we committed to putting together this forum, and this is only just the, the uh, initial part. Uh, we aim to build this as a platform across not only business and academia, but also government and civil society to um, help build the, the talent uh, capacity of Africa. And uh, fantastic. It looks like I've I've done my duty. <laughs> Thanks yeah, for yeah. that opportunity, uh, Rob. You 
You have indeed. Thank you so much, Dan, who no doubt will have some questions. Dan's always got questions uh, throughout these. Uh, so we'll probably hear his, his, his voice uh, before we reach the end of this hour. And on cue, perfect timing. Uh, our, our, one of our panelists has joined us, which means we are just about set, rearing and ready to go. So let me introduce her. Anna Ecoledo is the executive director of AFRI Labs, a network organization of 240 technology innovation hubs spread across 48 African countries leading AfriLabs to develop programs and building partnerships that support African innovation hubs and other stakeholders raise high potential entrepreneurs that stimulates economic growth and social development in Africa. Uh, Anna is an international speaker, trainer, innovation, ecosystem builder and mentor. She has a first class degree in psychology from uh, Covenant University in Nigeria and an MSc uh, international marketing management from Leeds, Uni Leeds University Business School uh, at the University of Leeds in the UK. Welcome Welcome, Anna. It's such a pleasure to, to have you with us. And I'll ask um, our, our fellow panelists to, to turn on their cameras as well. Darius Tida is Executive Director of Stanford Institute for Innovation in Developing Economies. Before joining Stanford Seed, Darius served as Vice President of Global Programs at Oxfam America, where he oversaw regional development and human rights programs in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, America, humanitarian response to natural disasters and conflict, and managed the research, learning, and evaluation teams. Darius holds a Bachelor of Arts in History from Yale University and a Master of Public Policy from Harvard Kennedy School. He's also completed advanced studies in resource economics at the University of British Columbia. And last but by no means least, Michael Mosharosh is a Director for Social Innovation in Johnson & Johnson's Consumer Health Division. In his current role as the Program Manager for Johnson & Johnson's Africa Innovation Challenge, his main focus is on finding and incubating health care-related startup companies in sub-Saharan Africa. And I'm more important than this moment that we get that sorted. Uh, prior to his current position, he worked for 25 and more years in research development and engineering for consumer health products at Johnson & Johnson in North America and Germany. He has a PhD in chemistry from the University of Stuttgart in Germany. So welcome to you all. Um, I, I do like generally where I come from, which is South Africa, uh, parliamentarians and politicians love very lengthy introductions and at the end of those lengthy introductions they say all protocol observed which i feel like they could have just led with that and said at the start all protocols observed we're good to go but we are good to go and so happy to have uh, you gathered here and just so that everyone is is kind of on board with us this is a free open flowing uh, conversation about what needs to be done in africa what needs to be done for africa and how we can bring various stakeholders together to achieve the various goals that has been set out. And this all, of course, is done uh, with the backdrop of Agenda 2063. That's how we've framed the Talent for Africa virtual forum, uh, trying to work towards those aspirations and those goals that have been set. Um, and maybe to start off with a, a, a more of a philosophical question, perhaps it's not that philosophical, whether Entrepreneurship, is it a, a, a nature or a nurture kind of situation? And you can talk from your various experiences as you've encountered people. Uh, do you find it is the kind of whether skill set or mindset that you're able to create from scratch? Or is it something that exists inherently in people that you can you can enhance? I as I said, probably more of a philosophical question, but why not let's start there? You're smiling, Anna, so I'm I'm gonna Throw it to you first. Oh no! <laughs> well, it's quite 
interesting because with the background in psychology, that nature nurture is always a debate. So it, it's quite interesting, interesting that you started with that question. Well, um, yes, I would say it's nurture, right? Um, but then, uh, okay, so let's break it down, right? Um, when we're talking about nurture, we're talking about, you know, uh, equipping in, into nurture. So equipping them with the right skills, the right processes, the, 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 the you know, the, the, the process that is involved from starting a venture or even testing out the innovation, building out the product, testing the market, um, testing the, um, the product, going to markets and all of that, right? Um, yes, you could say that it's nurture, uh, but then again, that nature bit of it, 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 it can be, it can be developed. I, I would say that it can be developed. And, uh, I mean, usually from very practical experience working with entrepreneurs, what we would say is just starting right on with the why, right? So why do you want to? Um, start a venture, why do you want to, uh, you know, build whatever company, why, why do you want to build a solution, you know, and then dealing with things around grids, um, uh, you know, the people skills, all of that, right? So yes, I, I would say nurture, um, and I would say nurture starting with the soft skills and understanding why and, you know, going through that process of developing the entrepreneurial mindsets, um, you know, uh, things around risk taking, for example, that is so important, being bold and all of that. And then, of course, the hard skills, um, which is whatever talent or business acumen is needed on the team. And I'll say on the team, of course, because um, different team members in a venture play different roles, right? So we have those with the very technical skills, the financial skills, the industry knowledge, um, the lead um, uh, entrepreneur or co-founders in the case of a co-founding um, team and all of that. So sometimes you might find just one person with that really strong entrepreneurial mindset and then the others have uh, that support role. So um, yes, I would lean more towards nurture. Yeah, and, and I mean, I asked this question specifically within the, the African context and Darius, I'll be surprised as, as a kind of, you know, business school educator background, if you were to say it's not nurture, but I, I, let me not presuppose uh, the answer and hear what you have to say. So I agree with Anna, but I would say that entrepreneurship has skill sets, but they're worthless without the mindset. And, um, and, and, and there's a reason why angel investors and early seed investors focus on the personality of the leader in the team, because ideas can change. The final idea that finally makes you money may not be look even remotely like the idea you walked in with. But as Anna said, are you, do you have grit? Are you hungry? Are you curious? Are you bold? Do you take risks? That stuff is, you know, is so important. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, same same question then to you, uh, Michael. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with Dan on this. I think without the nature, you're not going to have it at all. But you need you need the seed, you need the willingness, you need the 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 spirit if you want um, to want to create innovations. But without the nurture, the likelihood of success is very small. So you need a combination of both. You, you need the right personality to, 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 to Darius' point, um, but you also need to give them the tools that they can be successful. So 
and, and the reason I started there and where, where I'm going with that particular question is we see specifically on the African continent a plethora of entrepreneurs. I don't know whether there's been any kind of, you know, per capita calculations or sense done of just how many uh, entrepreneurs, micro, small, medium businesses are started on this continent versus, versus anywhere else. And the, the rates of attrition and everything else that follows because of a lack of a, a system that supports and whether those micro businesses are started out of necessity because people are just trying to stay alive and to do their best to feed their families uh, versus real innovation, uh, starting businesses because I have an innovative idea or I see potential, I see something that I would like to scale. So when we talk about building inclusive systems and inclusive societies as far as creating an environment for entrepreneurship to thrive, should we be separating out the those kind of mass micro players who are, are doing entrepreneurship for the sake of necessity versus those who are innovating. Um, and I don't want to say contributing necessarily more because everyone's doing their bit, but should we be separating those out when thinking of building an inclusive and environment and, and support structure for entrepreneurs uh, on the continent? Anna, do you have any thoughts? Sorry, could you just repeat the last bit? Yeah, so, so just whether or not we should, when we talk about inclusive societies and building and having an inclusive environment and support structures for entrepreneurs, because yeah. there are so many of them on the continent, do we endeavor to separate out who are, who, who are those are operating out of necessity on a really micro scale uh, versus those real innovative ideas that we see as growth potential, that we see as potentially scaling or, yeah. or is it all you know should it all be happening in one system regardless yeah um i mean I, I don't think it should be separated right because i mean what's that saying um, um uh, is the innovation is the mother of necessity or the other way around i'm always mixing it but basically yes there are situations whereby innovations come out of necessity Right. Um, I mean, if you look at the past year, for example, with the COVID-19 pandemic, right, we've seen some innovations um, or some startups, for example, um, who already had businesses, right, in the healthcare sector, and they had to pivot, you know, more to um, e-health, or you had um, the uptake of fintech solutions or logistics and all of that. So yes, some businesses scaled their existing operations and some started, right, that didn't exist before. You know, when we look at mobile diagnostic centers and leveraging on technology, for example, to reach out to people um, and all of that. So that was basically from the necessity. Some also go into entrepreneurship for the economic necessity, right? Actually, in Africa, you know, either from lack of jobs or opportunities and all of that. And yes, even if it's something we don't necessarily encourage, because yes, I mean, there's a risk of that. Again, it still comes down to the core of the why you're going into it and all of that. However, we cannot negate the fact that out of those um, uh, innovations um, and drive to succeed 
um, we do have successful businesses who significantly contribute back to, to society or whatever sector they, they operate in. And then on the other hand, of course, there are those that are developed uh, either to from the onset because a gap was uh, identified and all of that, and then the, 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 the venture is um, developed. So I would say that every type of innovation irrespective of how it started should be considered in an inclusive matter but the question is as we go through the innovation journey then we begin to you know uh, uh, look at the process of what exactly is your innovation is it relevant to the market is it really solving a need is it marketable is there a product market fit is it are you building an investable startup and then it's supporting a startup through that process and then naturally of course some of the innovations uh, some of the um, uh, startups would fall uh, along the way for different reasons um, some would die out some would pivot some would be successful um, and all that, of course, what we're trying to do uh, as an ecosystem is increase the success rate. So um, as a matter of inclusivity, I would say consider all because from all the ideas, from all the innovations and ventures, there are opportunities for any of them to be, you know, um, uh, any of them to have that high growth potential. Um, but, and also very important, and this is on a, I would say on a macro level, important to also involve them in the decision-making process while uh, systems are being built, right? Within the ecosystem or within the society as large. Um, again, looking at last year, we saw an uptake of uh, uh, startups across various sectors, right? In logistics, e-commerce, edtech, you know, the government and schools and academia all had to still go back to say, okay, what edtech solutions can be leveraged on more um, uh, 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 to reach out to people um, amid the pandemic and the lockdowns and the you know, inability to move. Um, and the need to still offer services virtually, right? So as we're creating a system, right, with all the stakeholders involved, how can we include innovations and um, uh, entrepreneurs from the very onset in an inclusive matter? And as we're creating an enabling environment and having conversations such as these, how can we also include your voices in the room? So that's really quite important as well. And Darius, to that point, uh, th there's a question that's come through from one of the attendees asking to what extent do we think that the entrepreneurial process in the USA, so incubation, acceleration, et cetera, and Europe and Asia are com comparable to developing similar activities in Africa? In other words, are there main differences or attributes that we should be taking into account when working in Africa and its specific needs in terms of that you know, typical business school model, perhaps, that we, that we think of? In your experience, what have you encountered? I mean, it's it's I would is copy and paste, uh, not quite, I imagine. It's a great question. You know, traditionally business schools have trained people to enter a corporate environment. I think that's less true at Stanford Graduate School of Business, where there's a culture of wanting to go to Stanford so you can figure out how to take your business idea to market. But in when we brought this program to the continent of Africa, what we realized is that a lot of what's in an MBA program is not actually appropriate for an early stage or you know, an established entrepreneur. They need practical tools that they can apply to their business now. And so we use a mixture of Stanford faculty and practitioners so that we can really focus on uh, what do you need right now. And you know, to Anna's point also, if you look at the United States, you might be surprised to find that 
most employment is provided by companies with less than 200 employees. We think that Walmart employs everyone in the United States, but actually it's small and medium enterprises have been the engine of growth and employment in the United States. That's actually what, what we wanna all see on the continent. If you did a histogram of industry by size in most African countries, you'd find this huge group of subsistence businesses that have five employees. Their family businesses, their subsistence businesses. Some of those can scale, some of them could just be run better. That's one market segment, they need specific tools and help. What we're looking for are the businesses that actually look like they could really scale and become a 50 person enterprise or a hundred person enterprise, which is actually big, right? They need another set of tools, right? And not everyone is gonna be Amazon. So, you know, at Stanford, uh, we're very, Stanford, see, we're very interested in those companies that are ready to break into the middle size. And again, different set of tools, different customer segment, um, and not a traditional MBA. It's about practical tools that you can apply to your business with coaches, with mentors, with a support ecosystem, a network of peers. Thanks. Michael, are you, are you finding the similar case on the ground when, when, when you're dealing with uh, through Johnson & Johnson and your work on the continent? Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more with, with, with Anna's perspective because the question that we have to ask ourselves, can we afford to exclude any innovators? Can we afford that? Because there might be very small and they might be starting in a very unconventional way, but they might have the next great idea that I don't think we can afford to miss. So what we have to do is we have to make sure that we give them at the right stage, the right tools to quickly either move forward or abandon the idea because you know it's also a waste of energy and a waste of resources to work on something that in the end won't have a, a chance to really make it successfully in the market. So early on to, 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 to Darius's point, um, one thing that I think is really, really important is that the, the entrepreneurs learn how to fail. And I see that somebody actually wrote a question around that. So one thing that I've observed in, the, in, in working on, on, on the continent was that the schooling system sometimes abhors failure. The way things are taught and the way things are evaluated require that you don't fail because otherwise you might lose the chance to continue your education. Um, that mindset is very dangerous for, for an entrepreneur. You might have a great idea and it doesn't, it might not work the first time. You have to be able to look at your failure, learn from your failure and improve it. It's the best way to learn it. Because if you do something and you do it right the first time, you don't know why you were successful. If you do it because you failed 10 times, you can know, you know exactly why you are successful this time and why you were not successful the last times. And helping entrepreneurs to, to, to build the confidence to say like, okay, I failed. Let me look at why I failed and let's see if I can fix it and try again. I think that's very important. And I mean, many, many larger entrepreneurs or, or, or very successful entrepreneurs, they come out of very small context, right? So I don't think you can afford to ignore anyone. Darius, I know you, you want to do. To, yeah, to... I just, uh, I just, I love the point Michael made. And somebody, Sanjay asked, what's different between Silicon Valley and, and, and Silicon Savannah? 
you know, one difference is it's a lot easier to fail with somebody else's money. And if you're starting a business with your dad's money or your mom's money or your cousin's money, your friends and family, uh, and you come from a culture where failure is, you know, is something you don't bounce back from, it's super scary, right? So what is really encouraging is that there is a generation of people now who realize there will not, not be a corporate employer in my future. And I have no choice. And I think that's also changing how parents and culture view risk-taking. So in India, if you ask somebody 20 years ago, what do you want to do when you finish your degree program? They want to work for Tata Industries. And if, and if they told their parents, actually, I want to go and try a startup, they would you know, slap them upside the head and say, what, are you an idiot? So, and I, this, I'm hearing this from a friend of mine who's a professor from India. And so, you know, culture has to shift too. Um, but so I think I just want to underscore, I completely agree with Michael's perspective here. It's, and that is a huge difference between trying to start something up in, in, in Mountain View, California and trying to start something up in Lagos. So how do we then kind of best start to create this environment, this, this all inclusive support structure? Uh, it's no doubt going to take multiple stakeholders to get that right. But often when the problem seems so, so huge, as it generally tends to be on the content with the numbers of people um, and, and the general kind of uh, systemic issues, where do we begin? How do we start building partnerships and relationships and stakeholders that we're able to scale an ecosystem for the sake of, of encouraging entrepreneurship and, 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 and innovative ventures to succeed? I, it's a, I, I take it it's a, it's a mammoth uh, task and question to answer, but your best educated guess. I, I don't think it's, a, it's such a big problem really because okay. you already see you see already things happening, moving in the right direction. I'll give you an example. Um, if you look at the Resilient African Network at Makarere University in Kampala, they have a program where they teach young, very early entrepreneurs how to deal with entrepreneurship. You know, how to, they, they give them very small amount of funding to help support them financially a little bit. It's really minute, but they help them to develop their ideas and to do the research that's necessary to develop their ideas into a potential innovation that can be making a difference in the market. And the same thing is true if you look at governments. Um, some governments have figured out that innovation can be absolutely a driver for their economy. Um, good example is Innovation City in Kigali in Rwanda. They're creating the environment and the infrastructure that really fosters innovation and, 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 and helps entrepreneurs, that allows them to connect and, and, and do things like that. Um, and then, you know, you can't forget the innovation hubs. Uh, I think an innovation hub is a great place for any entrepreneur to start because not only he can get some support, but he can, has also people that he or she can, can, you know, exchange ideas, exchange experiences. It's really important. The issue though with, with the innovation hubs is that they are very often not very well connected. So a common platform between the innovation hubs would be a great improvement for Africa because then the entrepreneurs can find people who are looking into similar things that can find resources or partners or even sponsors. And the other way around, I mean, potential funders can find innovators that fit what they're looking for. You're on mute, Diana. 
Yeah, okay. Yeah, so just to add to Michael's comments, because really excellent points. I couldn't agree more on the role of government, for example, in creating the right regulatory environment and just having that political will to say that, look, um, um, entrepreneurship uh, is an economic driver and we're going to put the right systems and infrastructure and policies and regulatory environment to ensure that innovation entrepreneurship thrives, right? Um, another part I would, and of course, innovation hubs, um, one of the things we're working on, for example, as AFI Labs, just touching to what Michael mentioned on the need for the innovation hubs to be well connected um, as well uh, as to potential funders is uh, one of the things we're working on is uh, cat, what we call Catalyst. And it's a partnership with the African Business Angels Network, which is a network of angel investors across Africa, right? And what we're looking to do is to connect all the innovation hubs and their startups to angel investors on the continent, leveraging on data and analytical tools to match um, startups with um, investors that fit their, um, uh, you know, um, 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 interests and all of that in, in, in terms of the sort of um, early stage um, startups they'll like to invest in. I mean, if you look at all the reports that have been launched recently on startup funding in 2020, yes, every year, year on year, there's an increase in uh, startup investments on the African continent. However, it's still largely within certain countries, right? So Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, Egypt, right? And then those are the, you know, those are the startups, the startups within locations that are best funded, um, uh, that raise the highest amount of funding, that raise even follow-on funding as well. So those of them that have gone on to Silicon Valley, for example, gone into YC as a result of the, the, the connections uh, um, uh, further made. But this is also because the investors, the early stage investors and the support system within um, those uh, countries and even specifically within those cities. So it would still be Lagos, Joburg, Cape Town, you know, Cairo have decided they're going to back um, early stage um, ideas. But of course, there's the role of um, academia as well. So universities, I mean, there's a strong correlation between the most successful um, uh, um, uh, ecosystems globally, right? Um, uh, uh, and the academic activity and how they produce quality talent, right? That can feed into um, uh, either building startups as the founders or supporting them with the right uh, uh, high tech skills. So that's quite important as well um, in terms of the different stakeholders needed. And then of course, we have development organizations and other financial institutions and funders um, that also work to just fund the ecosystem um, building either through capacity building or um, grants um, or zero interest loans or other forms of uh, financial support to um, entrepreneurs as well. And at the, at the point that Michael was making the point about governments learning and being receptive to um, the worth in entrepreneurship and, and creating, you know, getting rid of the kind of red tape, we actually had a question um, come in from Christian, which was, I guess, countering uh, that at the same time, questioning how much governments are doing, and in fact, uh, was asking about GBSN's role in advocating uh, for governments, um, or lobbying governments, not quite what we do, uh, more involved from the education perspective, but the point remains. I know, Anna, that you were involved in some level in terms of perhaps working committees with the Continental Free Trade um, Area and Agreement. Were you seeing more of an, app an appetite 
from various governments, you know, seeing the light, because we had this come up um, as an issue in our first session as well, this, this notion of uh, governments on the continent unnecessarily tying things up in red tape and not creating those really conducive environments. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's different in different countries, right? There's certain countries that it's just hard. It's hard to set up a business, and this is just me being very candid. You, you go and spend days and weeks trying to set up a business. Um, the fees are ridiculously high. There's tons and tons of paperwork to be done. And then after you set up your business and you're operating, you have different tax authorities knocking on your door before you even generate your first revenue, right? So it's hard. Investment policies as well can be quite difficult, you know. So how are investors protect, um, protection? Um, what are the taxes on capital gains um, um, once their uh, stocks are being uh, sold and, uh, and all that? How easy is it to list? Um, how how um, mature is the you know, uh, 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 ecosystem and the, 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 the regulatory environment in, in supporting startups? So yes, there are countries whereby it's really tough. However, on the other note, we have seen some progress with the African government being very, um, uh, very committed to building their ecosystem. Uh, and one of the evidence of this is with the enactment of startup acts across African continents with uh, Tunisia setting the trend um, uh, a couple of years ago, was 2016 or so. Yeah, I have to confirm the, 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 the year, you know, and this is basically an act that recognizes startup as an entity with certain perks, right? So you get the startup label, you get certain tax incentives, you know, uh, and you're, you're allowed to build a company in a risk-free environment. If you fail, you have job security, you know, all of that. There's funding available and all of that. Now, um, Senegal as well, um, we, we, we've carried out a lot of policy advocacy work um, in partnership with a, a member, um, community I for policy, um, hosting policy acts and a series of policy dialogues with governments. And then um, December 2019, Senegal as well also enacted the Startup Act and they specifically set up an agency which is focused on supporting and funding um, entrepreneurs as well. Rwanda is a perfect example of, uh, I think recently they just um, um, set up uh, a policy uh, on um, uh, uh, um, uh, no capital gain tax uh, for investors looking to sell, you know, their shares and all of that. So yeah, there, there are countries, I know South Africa is doing some work around supporting entrepreneurs and all that. So there are countries that have quite progressive governments and well, we continue to do the work to just constantly push uh, more African governments to um, act. But then, um, yeah, uh, on, a, on, a, on a broader scale, it's quite, it can be quite difficult to just Run a business uh, setup or run a business in the in the, in the African continent. And, and from a from a teaching perspective, then Darius, how do you begin to overcome those challenges when you're you know you have general framework of what you know how to innovate and uh, and going through the various processes of entrepreneurship, but then you're faced with a continent that is as diverse as Africa, Brett's asked a question as well about how much work's being done to try and understand the various demographics, markets, preferences, trends within the continent. How, with all of those challenges, how do you even start teaching? 
a couple of quick thoughts. The first is that I totally agree with Anna. Some some African governments and specific people with you know uh, are trying to make a change. So, the vice president of Ghana visited Stanford Business School. The president of Botswana visited Stanford Business School. The vice president of Nigeria, you know, arranged a meeting with Stanford Seed, all of to talk about how you know how can we partner to promote edu uh, the the education of entrepreneurship and stimulate entrepreneurship in our country. So I think that's very positive outreach. Um, on the teaching side, you know, what we've realized, because we do take Stanford faculty to the continent uh, in our program for small and medium enterprises, and what we've realized is there's some topics that are really well handled by Stanford faculty because the experience is universal, and there's other topics that don't translate, and you really need local experts. So when we, for example, when we are working on uh, best practices in human resource management, we don't bring somebody from Silicon Valley. We actually bring experts from Lagos, from Ghana, from Kenya. Similarly, if you want to talk about business, that business ethics and good governance in business, you know, it's really it's not that helpful to hear from somebody in the U.S. environment talking about dealing with day-to-day -day corruption uh, in starting a business and all that. You know, anytime there's a license, there's an opportunity for corruption, right? Anytime there's a sense. so. You know, I don't pretend that we can understand or speak to those truths very well from our perspective in the U.S. Not to say the U.S. doesn't have corruption; we have tons of it. It's just much more, much more sort of legalized. Um, and then the last comment I'll make is: so localizing uh, content based on the topic is really important. And the last thing I will say is, in terms of, you know, the informal sector, all those businesses that are really quite small and maybe below the statutory and regulatory radar. Nothing sells to sends chills down my spine, chills of fear more than when a public official says, we wanna formalize the informal sector. Because it sounds really positive, but it's just taking all those like rent seeking opportunities and bringing them all the way down to the bottom. So if formalizing the informal sector means actually providing them services, helping them get their business, that's great. It so often ends up going in the wrong direction, which is just becomes a way for the you know unscrupulous officials to to get their fingers even further down into society. Michael, I see I see you're nodding your head, and we we had a, an email exchange a week or two ago in preparation, and you know talking about what exactly. And Doris, in fact, just in the last twenty four hours, had asked me the same thing. Uh, you know, informal sector. What exactly was I was I referring to in terms of wanting to bring them into the into the formal sector. So I take it you, you're agreeing on similar terms as far as what uh, Darius has just said. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, there's there's obviously multiple perspectives that you can, can or multiple lenses that you can use to look at it. A lot of the, the entrepreneurs start in the informal sector. Now, if you wanna scale up, let's say, and you are looking for funders, especially not for local funders, but from, from, from funders from the US or from Europe or whatever, if you're in the informal sector, you're gonna have a hard time getting your funding because that is a very risky thing. You want, as a funder, you want a company that essentially is a part of the, the formal sector, you know, pays taxes and doesn't have any surprises. They will still have surprises, but you know, less surprises, let's, let's call it that way. Right. So I think it's important. And to Darius's point, I think it's absolutely spot on. You need governments that help those small informal um, sector entrepreneurs to, to become a formal uh, a business, a, a, a business in, in, in the formal sectors. And it's not the other way around. The in, I, I want to make a comment to, to what, what Anna was saying. Um, 
if you look, yes, there are there are many, many, many entrepreneurs in Africa, but I think some countries have started to figure out that there is also a competition within or between the countries where will be the next Silicon Valley or whatever, right? So some countries have figured out if I can attract talent from other countries and I, by, for example, creating regulations that allow people to travel to my country, to stay in my country, to, 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 to start a business easily in my country, they will attract talent from the region. Let's say, for example, in, in Rwanda, you will find people at the, at the innovation city that are um, they're coming from the Congo. If you try to do a business in the Congo, good luck. I mean, that's not, it's possible, but it's not easy, right? Whereas if you, if you would move over to Rwanda, suddenly things become relatively transparent. You have a, a lower level of corruption. Um, your environment is much more designed for you to be successful. You don't have to fight the, 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 the government to move forward because everybody tries to get a piece of your action. But the government, on the other hand side, tries to help you to move forward because they all see that if you're successful, you're contributing to the local economy. And that local economy could be in your country or it could be in the country where you get the ideal conditions to grow your company. And when we talk about the motivation, whether the motivation is because, you know, we think the next Silicon Valley is going to be in, in Cape Town versus Lagos, and you have that kind of uh, internal uh, competition, whether, you know, that's the pure motivation or this question of, and you'd raised it with me before the session, Darius, impact, uh, and the notion of whether we teach for individual desires uh, or whether we teach teaching for a kind of collective greater good. I was talking to uh, Francois Bonici from the Schwab Institute um, a good number of months ago and talking about this issue of social entrepreneurship. So creating value along the entire value chain and with, with the notion of doing good. Um, it, it, it's, it's, I think no longer so frowned upon that, that whether it's business school students um, or just people in general starting businesses ultimately also want to be able to say that they're doing good. And it's not just about the traditional bottom line. So how do you go about that process? Do you just focus on, well, there's an intake of, of students. This is who we're working with. And you know we impart upon them the knowledge that they need to go forth and be merry. Or is there that underlying notion of greater impact for the greater good? Um, maybe I'll start a little bit on this one. So the new generation of students that are showing up at Stanford for their MBAs are very focused on doing more with their life than just helping somebody else and, and themselves make a ton of money. It's This is what students want. They want to understand how to have a positive impact in the world. And I, you know, I've, I'm sure, I don't want to say that previous generations didn't think like that, but what you're seeing in business schools is a really strong drive to that. Similarly, with the with the business leaders, the CEOs that go through the C transformation program, you know, we want we bring impact into it, but we realize that impact has to be a conversation in every element of your business strategy. So it's about do you have an ethical supply chain? Do you care who your suppliers are and how they treat their their own employees and their environment? Do you care about how your business impacts the local neighborhood? Um, and then do you care about how your products are used? So all along your value chain, there are multiple ways in which you can be a better business. 
And in the bottom, you know, I don't want to say it's always rosy and that always positively affects your bottom line. But, you know, if you look at um, the, um, the impact measurement project with Omidyar and B Labs, you know, they say, first of all, you got to manage your risk, environmental, social, and governance risk. So that's just good business, right? And then if you go to the B Corps Declaration of Interdependence, that they want to take it farther, that, you know, all business should be conducted as if people in place mattered. And any business school, any incubator that is not based on, you know, starting from that as a fundamental principle, I think is, is not doing it right. And Anna, on, on, when you're working on the ground and, and connecting people and help, helping these entrepreneurs uh, to better in, innovate and scale, are you finding as a, as a motivating factor on the continent, it's generally about wanting to do the good and not just about you know, make, making a buck here or there? Absolutely. Um, I would say yes. Um, the reason why, however, is a bit contested, right? So on one hand, yes, we have more entrepreneurs saying that they want to do good. They want to contribute to the social well-being of citizens. They want to solve problems around SDGs and things like that, right? So there's a lot of work around social entrepreneurship and more than just, you know, hitting the bottom line. On the flip side, and I'll say this very as diplomatic as I can, right? What we're also seeing on the continent is a drive and a campaign towards doing good and social entrepreneurship without also dealing with the building a profitable a highly profitable high growth adventure. I, I think i think we lost right? you at i think we lost so, you at the good bit there you just frozen. broke up for a second unless it was just on my yeah, end but I think my we, we lost is not so good yeah we, we can hear you we just lost you at the good bit so if you just want to Hello? rewind 15 hey. seconds let me, let me turn let me turn. let's let's give it a second is it better now i've turned uh, off my video okay yeah go ahead no all right no so let's let's see if we can get anna back in in a minute or two michael with within johnson and johnson and your 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 africa innovation challenge would you say that that at the heart i mean you're dealing with a lot of um healthcare as well, innovation. It's, it's by nature for doing good, I hope. Right. So just to give a quick explanation on what the African Innovation Challenge is, we, we post challenges around healthcare topics um, and they're open for African innovators to apply for, right? And we are looking for startups that have meaningful and impactful innovations. We don't look for ideas. We, we look for, for companies or startups that already have a proof of concept, that have some, some data, tested prototypes, things like that. And then we, we screen through our applications and, 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 and pick a couple of our Ds. And those are, they're getting some funding. And the, the funding is, is not, it's not a lot of money. It's a lot of money for them, but it's, it's you know, over in the, in the big scheme of thing, it's not a lot of money. But what they also get is they get mentorship through teams of uh, Johnson Johnson professionals. Those are all volunteers. And those teams are put together specifically to the needs of the individual um, entrepreneur. And the interesting feedback that we get from all our innovators is that 
they all applied for the money. That was the reason why they applied for it. But they came back and recognized that the much more valuable part for them is mentorship and the access to expertise. And I mean, one thing, uh, a comment to Darius, Darius, is, you might not like that, but how many entrepreneurs, I mean, if I look how many entrepreneurs that I work with have been to a business school, that's a small number. A lot of the entrepreneurs have never had the benefit of a business school. So they yeah. often walk into this and what they need is they, I, I mean, if they have access to a business school, great, but often mentorship can sort of help them a little bit towards how to build a proper business, right? Um, so I couldn't agree more. I just, just, just to respond on that, I could not agree more. And that's why the Sea Transformation Program is not based at Stanford. It's actually based in East and West Africa. And it's almost, you know, it's so heavily in, focused on mentorship and coaching. I just agree with you 100%. Yeah, and just to, to, to complete that point is like, our goal is to, to make those, 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 those startups financially sustainable. I don't believe that charity is a business model in the long run. You know, like, oh, we need some money, we need some money. No, you, you have to come to a point where you can clearly see if I do this, that, and the other, and if, I have, if I'm successful in doing so, I will be sustainable financially. The other aspect that, that we learned was trust is very important. Um, we have no business interest in our grantees. So, I mean, everything they do is there. So if they create IP with our help, it's their IP. Uh, if they have ideas, it's their ideas. And by having no strings attached to the support, we can overcome this whole perception or threat that you know small entrepreneurs often feel if they work with large corporations, oh, they come and take my stuff away, right? So we say, no, 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 it's all yours. We don't want any of it, we, it's all yours. So that's, that's very, very important. And that allows them to build long lasting relationships. Um, we have direct and frequent interactions between our entrepreneurs and their support mentors, the teams, right? And the funny thing is that although our program is, is, is set to be 12 months, um, many of the, the teams actually continue supporting the, the entrepreneur independent from anything that I do uh, because they build relationships, they build friendships, right? They have a, the, the, the mentors are emotionally engaged in what the entrepreneur wants to do. And that is, is, is kind of the, the, the ideal outcome in a way for us. Yeah, okay, I think I'm back on now. Yeah, okay, so yeah. I'll just write again, I'll just write on Michael's point. I, I mean, I just love your points. <laughs> on, you know, ensuring businesses are sustainable. And I think that's the, 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 the point I wanted to make earlier on, that yes, a lot of businesses and entrepreneurs are looking at building social enterprises on the continent. Yes, there's that social responsibility that a lot of younger people now have in contributing back and building you know, our society in general and just solving all the problems, solving problems around climate change, solving problems around financial inclusion and um, you know, education of the most marginalized kids and all that, access to affordable education. Um, however, a lot of it is also driven by um, really well-meaning and needed campaigns for people to think that way. But again, it comes down to the why. So if we have businesses that are being set up and the focus is on social entrepreneurship and solving the problems of everybody 
without dealing with the sustainability and the business of building a profitable business, then that's not a right model to follow. However, you know, unless it's a nonprofit, of course, and all of that, and even even running a nonprofit um, organization now, there's more conversation around sustainability and the rest, right? I mean, within our network of innovation hubs, I would say most of them are nonprofits, but we do a lot of capacity building um, on building more sustainable systems and more sustainable models of generating income as well as you're in the business of building ecosystems, supporting entrepreneurs and the like. So it's very important as well that as we, um, and then I like I like Dario's comments in the box that um, um, clarified that not every business should uh, be a social enterprise, but um, uh, should operate ethically, absolutely right on point. I think from small businesses as SMEs to the large corporates, um, business ethics um, is, I mean, just operating ethically within and, and sustainability, again, is not just about financial sustainability, right? There's also the environmental sustainability, right? Because that, that's the responsibility, responsibility of every um, enterprise, whether you're a nonprofit or social enterprise or core for profit um, organization. So just um, uh, operating ethically to your, to your suppliers, for example, to your um, uh, to the end user, to people who are developing your raw materials, wherever it's from. I mean, we, we all know about the issues that led to discussions around ethical trade. Um, uh, I know we don't go into that. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and of course, how you relate and are transparent generally to even your investors and stakeholders and all of that. So absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah. Rob, if I could jump in on this, you know, um, I mean, the thing about ethical businesses, some of the most unethical businesses are the multinationals that are operating like mining companies in your, you know, in, in your country. And it's, you know, it is a disgrace that, you know, those companies, because they're so big and powerful, exert enormous influence over policymakers and just basically break all the rules and, and screw everybody over. And, you know, that is, the, you know, so I recognize that there shouldn't be a double standard and you know, that these playing fields are rigged. So that, I think, let's just acknowledge that right up front. I wanted to go to Michael's point. You know, Michael said people apply for the money to their program, but end up appreciating the mentorship. I, I just think that is such a powerful point. In our program, there is no money. If, if you successfully get in, there's only uh, programmatic uh, learning and mentorship. So what, you know, the Stanford Graduate School of Business takes kind of a whole of school approach. So we have, um, we have coaching coaching program for, for CEOs and 70% of those coaches are Stanford Graduate School of Business alumni who want to engage in Stanford Seed's mission. Uh, we have a, a whole database of consultants to provide free consulting services. We've done over 400 consulting projects with business leaders in our program, all volunteers. A lot of them are also Stanford alumni. And then last year we sent, we had 51 Stanford Business School students, MBAs interning with companies on the continent and in India. So I think of it as like a whole of school approach to trying to bring as much support as possible. And then I think the other thing that, that Anna said in, uh, earlier, this importance of peer networking is so crucial. Um, so what we try to do in the Seed Transformation Program is anyone who finishes the program is part of the Global Seed Network. And we, can, we do a whole lot of continuous learning and webinars and, and actually, they do most of it for each other. So the Nigeria chapter will have a learning event and invite 
all the past participants in the seed program from 19 countries across the African continent. So I think uh, I can't emphasize enough that, that peer networking, making that like consistently investing in peer networking. You would be amazed how many business leaders in Ghana have never set foot in Cote d'Ivoire, but they would love to do business there, right? And it would take them three years to find a good partner there on their own. But if they can find a peer from a network of like-minded business leaders, they can find the right partner in three months. That saves them a ton of money, right? So cross, there was somebody that asked like, how do corporations understand how to make business despite the vast cultural diversity within the African continent? I would say the bigger challenge is how do business leaders in African countries figure out how to make business next door? Because it is so diverse. So peer networking is just crucial. And in the interest of time, I'm going to ask for, for concluding remarks, but maybe let me just uh, go through some of the uh, comments that have come through in the chat. And we're not going to be able to, unfortunately, get through ev to everyone's questions. Uh, good point, Darius. This is from Rashid and echoed by uh, Sylvia saying, sadly, the focus is on SMEs to address the triple bottom line, while the big firms still do T-shirts and give away branded trinkets to secure social uh, social uh, licenses. So uh, certainly the point well taken. Uh, Anna, I don't know whether you, you, you left us hanging uh, some moments ago and you were about to be very diplomatic in your responses to why, um, why people do good or whether that was the main motivator. Um, I don't know whether you want to use that opportunity to wrap up or any other concluding remarks uh, that you wish to share with us. No, it's okay. I think I pretty much addressed it in my comments around um, ensuring that even in the campaign to have more entrepreneurs build social enterprises we should also not leave out the importance of building sustainable or profitable businesses right um in terms of wrapping up well i think everything has basically been said um uh, on the panel it's been quite interesting and i would say again a multi-stakeholder approach is what we basically believe in um everyone working together and putting their you know, playing their bit, right? It isn't a one um, organization or one support organization um, type of work, but then the, the environment and all of that. And I would use this opportunity to actually share a success story. Someone in the chat gave, asked a question on a, a startup we've supported and Afilabs in itself is not a support. We, we don't directly work with startups. However, I can give an example where the ecosystem, which we worked really hard um, to build, with um, you know, various stakeholders has led to the success of a startup um, uh, um, uh, last year. So one, uh, a Nigerian startup called, um, uh, oh my goodness, Paystack, yes. <laughs> a Nigerian FinTech called Paystack got acquired by, by Stripe for $200 million last year. Right, and that startup about four years ago, five years ago, 2016, um, had their first seed funding um, by an innovation hub um, within the ecosystem. And then they also got follow on funding by the investor network that was built, you know, um, over time. And then over time, again, through the connections and everything, got into YC, a follow on accelerator, you know, in the US. And then there was that constant support, mentorship. Um, refining of their business models by mentors within the ecosystem, the innovation hubs and all of that. And then, you know, last year they got acquired for $200 million. And we, we do have quite a number of startups at various levels of uh, maturity. We have Ineza, for example, in Kenya, 
um, doing quite well in the ed tech space. We have Kobo 360 doing quite well in the uh, 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 logistics. So these are just a couple of examples whereby a multi-stakeholder is important. The right environment, investors coming in, the right mentors, Michael spoke about really the importance of mentors, Darius as well, uses that model um, uh, as well. So yeah, that, that's what I would use to um, um, wrap up as well. Um, yeah, that's it. Great. Michael, would you like to share some, some concluding mark, remarks? Just a very short comment. So somebody wrote in the in the chat that access to capital remains a major challenge for businesses in Africa. That's only partially correct. What I think is, and that's something that 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 academia can do is teach entrepreneurs how to write applications for grants for 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 funding. Um, that's something that, especially if you look at really small startups that, that, that don't have the experience, for them, it's very hard to get the capital because they haven't learned yet how to really write a grant application. I mean, bigger companies have people who are paid for writing grant applications. And so, so that knowledge is very, very helpful because I actually think that there, there are plenty investors who want to invest in, in Africa, but for them, it's very hard to find the right innovation um, and, and the right kind of entrepreneur. And I mean, I've read multiple applications where it took me quite a while to figure out uh, what is this about? And if that entrepreneur would have had a little bit of schooling and how to get his, his or her point across, they would have such a much, easy, a much easier time to, to, to get the funding. So, so that is an aspect that, you know, in order to get the funding, you need to have a certain skill set to tap into it. And, and that skill set would be really, really helpful for a lot of entrepreneurs. Darius, you have the last word. Oh, thanks. I agree with Michael that there is a lot of capital. There's not a lot of pipeline to receive that capital. Not that it's not there, but it's there. There's like this economic problem of finding each other. Um, and then I think you have to acknowledge that the banking system is pretty broken in a lot of the continent because banks, it's easier to lend to the governments than it is to go out and do diligence on a smaller medium enterprise. So the cost of capital for, of, you know, bank capital, which is frankly where most capital comes from in the US and in Europe, it's not, it's not VC and PE, it's banks, right? So that's a big problem that has to be solved. Uh, my, my last concluding remark, just to say thanks for including me on the panel and a shameless pitch that the C Transformation Program will be taking applications from February for enterprises that meet our criteria. Check us out. Great. Not, not, not shameless at all. And uh, I, I will say we'll include that in any post-communication we send out. So, so thanks for, for throwing in the shameless pitch. Not at all. Uh, Darius, uh, Michael, as well as Anna, I can't thank you enough for spending the just over an hour with us, uh, all the preparation you put into this and for sharing your thoughts so openly and so freely. It's really been greatly appreciated for this, the, the second session of our Talent for Africa Forum with our partners at uh, Echobank Academy. And to let you know that the next session, the third session, is about the future workforce learning and development in the fourth industrial revolution. For more on our Talent for Africa forum with Echobank Academy, visit gbsn.org slash talent for Africa. And that's the numerical four. Please remember to click and subscribe to the podcast and feel free to rate us if you've enjoyed listening. Until next time, take care.